0: Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Well, let's open God's Word now. Revelation chapter 22. We finally made it to the last chapter in this wonderful and challenging book. And We'll be looking at this for the next two weeks, but uh, as uh, Mark mentioned, we have a, a group of our families who are not in this room with us. They are in the back, and I just want to greet you guys and gals and say thank you for being willing to make that little sacrifice to move into an overflow room so that we can make room for, for the visitors that have come. If you're visiting with us, so thankful that you've chosen to come and worship the Lord Jesus Christ with us here at Cornerstone. We'd love to get to know you better answer any questions you may have. So hopefully uh, one of the elders or maybe at the welcome booth out there as you're leaving, we'd love to, to get to know you a little bit better. And hopefully this has been a blessing to you so far. But now we're going to open God's Word. We're going to continue to worship as we focus on God's Word and then we respond to it. And today we, we see this beautiful picture this beautiful picture that our hearts long for, this beautiful picture that all of Scripture has been guiding us to, this beautiful picture that instills in us a hope for our future, not based upon what we do, but based upon what God has accomplished through Christ and what He has promised to His people. So if you are in Revelation 22, would you just follow along as I read through verses 1 through 5? Then the angel showed me and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is God's Word. Would you pray with me before we study it together? Father, I do thank you for your word. I thank you for this opportunity to study it together, to learn from it, to see this vision that John was allowed to see demonstrated and portrayed before us. And Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to receive your word and that you would open our hands and make us ready to respond to it in a faithful way. And, and I truly believe that this is, this is one of those passages where our our goal in response is, is simply to behold. The rest of the chapter is going to tell us some things that we must do in response to this revelation, but today, would you let us just behold this glorious promise and let it fill in our hearts, this hope about the future that you have planned and purchased for your people? Would you allow us to grow in our joy and allow us to long for the day so that we can say, like John tells us toward the end of this chapter, chapter, come Lord Jesus. So accomplish your purpose through the preaching of your word to uh, edify your saints, to convict the lost, and to accomplish your purpose. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. That's a helpful thing. So we finally reach this final chapter, and it's not just the final chapter in the book of the Revelation, it's the final chapter in the Bible. Here in Revelation 22, God brings his story to a close with the promise that the future is incredibly bright for his people. This old world of darkness and sin and sorrow and pain is going to pass away, and a new world awaits us. And it reminds me, Jeff, it took me a couple of weeks to get back to this, but it actually reminded me of a Lord of the Rings reference. There's, you may not know the story, probably you do, whether you've read the books or watched the movie, but it reminds me of Sam Gamgee, who I think is the real hero of the story. Sam Gamgee at the end of The Return of the King, when he wakes up after everything has seemingly come apart, and there's this quote that he has, he's he's talking to Gandalf, and he's just woken up, and he lays back, and he stares with open mouth, and this is a quote from the book, and it says, for a moment he was bewildered, but there was great joy that came. And he could not answer, but at last he finally gasped, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead myself. And here's the quote, is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world, he says. Now, if you know the story, you know this. Sam was not necessarily the main character, but he was a key figure. Sam left his home to follow his master to go and to try to destroy a great evil from Middle-earth. He saw amazing things along the way. His real goal was to see the elves, but he saw a lot more than just that. But not only did he see some amazing things, he saw some terrible things. He saw Gandalf fall into darkness. He he passed sleepless nights wondering if Gollum was going to turn on his master. He, He followed his master into the very heart of darkness to the mountain of fire and he watched as Frodo tried to destroy the ring but failed. No spoilers here. He felt the heat of the volcano and then he lay down beside his master to welcome death. But then he wakes up later on in another place, and he learned that everything in the world that he thought was going to happen, everything had changed. Gandalf was alive, and and so was he. The ring was no more. All of his friends were safe, and the only thing he could think to ask was, is everything sad going to come untrue? You see, all of us have a longing in our hearts a deep longing for the sad things in life to come untrue. We have that ache in our hearts, that hope that our sadness will be turned upside down, that our hurts will be completely relieved, that we will be reunited with those loved ones that we've lost, those friends that have gone on before us. We have this longing that our broken lives will be put back together we long for the good guys to win, right? For the dawn to chase away the darkness and for all the wrongs in the world to be made right. And that longing deep down in our hearts that shows itself in literature like this, it also shows itself in scripture. And that longing is something that God has placed there. And and that longing is something that only biblical Christianity can ultimately satisfy. Christianity satisfies this longing in a way that no mere story can. And the Bible tells us that the thing which our hearts are longing for is the return of Christ and the consummation of all things. When the Bible says he will come again and make all things new, right all wrongs, destroy sin and every enemy, and usher his people into his presence in this glorious eternal state that we're learning about right here. In Revelation 22. And in Revelation 22 verses 1 through 5, that, that day that we long for, that hope that the scriptures hold out for us, it has finally come, forever has begun, if you will. And at the center of it all is the throne of God and the Lamb. Now, we've been studying this new Jerusalem, this vision of that heavenly reality. We've been studying it for the last several weeks. Well, now we've finally reached the center of the city, and at the center of the city is the throne of God and the Lamb. And so there's three things that we're going to learn in this passage, three things today. Number one, we're going to look at the presence of God in the city. Number two, the curse of sin is no more. And then number three, the servants of God in eternity. So let's look at these three things. Go back and look at verse one with me. Let's learn about the presence of God in the city. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, and the river is flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb. Now, if you're visiting with us today, you probably haven't heard the sermons from the last few weeks, but as we've been studying this, we've been learning about this vision. We've been studying this vision of what John had described to him by an angel was a vision of the bride of Christ being prepared for her master, and then he begins to describe a city. And and we've seen this city, it, it came down out of heaven, it was something, it was a gift from God, and John has been able to see various parts of the city, and then he's described them to us. And the first thing that caught John's attention as this city began to come down out of heaven was the glory of the city. John was very quick to point out that the city radiated with the light of the glory of God. And then after his eyes adjusted to the glory of the city, he saw that there was a wall around the city, a massive wall around the city. And then he told us about the gates that allowed access into and out of the city. There were were gates all around. And then he started talking about the foundations. There were 12 foundation stones all around the city. And as he moved in to get a better view, he noticed that there were names on the gates. The names of the twelve patriarchs were on the gates, and then the names of the twelve apostles were on the foundation stones. And he saw the jewels come into focus that reminds us of the rainbow of God's covenant promise. And then the, the angel began to call out measurements. He began to measure the city, and I imagine it was at that point that John began to piece together what he was seeing. Because when the measurements came out, we realized that the city was a cube dominated by gold. Like the holy place in Solomon's temple. Only in this city coming down out of heaven, there was no temple. The city was filled with people. From every tribe and tongue and language and nation. And they were all coming in and they were all giving their glory and their honor to God and to the Lamb. And in this vision, John was allowed to see something that was familiar to him. Familiar, but far more glorious and far more grand and far more amazing than the earthly models that made it familiar. What John was seeing is the heavenly city where God will dwell with his redeemed sons and daughters forever. But the tour of the city is not over. And here in Revelation 22, we see finally the center of the city. At the center of this heavenly Jerusalem, this new Jerusalem, stands the throne of God and the Lamb. And from the throne, there's a river flowing out of it. And that's an odd thing for us to imagine. But that's the picture that John sees. There's the throne of God and the Lamb. There's one throne, but two seated upon the throne. But from the throne, he tells us, there is this river flowing. And it's the, the river of the water of life. Now, this river is familiar, not only to John, but to us, for a couple of reasons. First, it's, it's familiar because this is the river filled with the water of of life, and maybe you are familiar with that phrase because that's something that Jesus used. He used that phrase in John chapter four, when he met a woman at the well, and he began to discuss with her about the water that he could give to her. He said it would be living water, water that would become like a a spring welling up to eternal life. What Jesus offers to those who trust in him is not something that satisfies us temporarily. Jesus is not offering to us some magical drink or some mystical drink that will help us to feel happy for a little while until we get bored and turn our attention to something else. Jesus offers eternal satisfaction. Jesus offers full atonement, full forgiveness of sins, full reconciliation to God. He offers eternal life, and that's what this river represents. The eternal life that flows from God to all those who receive Christ by faith. But this river also is familiar because well, well Jesus and John are not the only two in the Scriptures to mention the, this river. We see it in the pages of the Old Testament. In Ezekiel chapter 47, actually Ezekiel 40 through 47, is the prophet's picture. It's his description of the heavenly Jerusalem that's to come, only this is prior to Christ's coming. And in those chapters at the end, in chapter 47, he begins to describe the throne of God on earth as it's going to be in this eternal state, and he describes a river flowing out of the temple that sits in Jerusalem. The water starts out, he describes it as the water starting out just ankle deep, but then before long it's all the way up to the waist and then the individuals who try to walk through it have to swim because it's just so deep. And everything that comes into contact with the river experiences this incredible growth of life. This is the river of life. And so all of the trees along the banks of this river are growing in incredible ways And, and all the fish inside the river are just teeming and multiplying in amazing ways. The description, the prophetic description is to help us understand that this is in fact water of life that comes from God and it gives life to everything and everyone. Everything that touched the river flourished. Now, Ezekiel wasn't the only prophet to mention that. Joel talked about this river. Zechariah talked about this river. And they talk about this river as flowing from the temple of God. And they describe it as an end of day's reality. And what John is seeing in this vision of the revelation is the same thing they saw, but he's seeing it in its fullness. This river, it also reaches back further than the prophets. This river reaches all the way back to the garden. All the way back to Genesis 2. Where there was a river that flowed out of the garden of Eden. And it it sustained and gave life to everything in the garden. So I hope you get a picture here. What John is seeing at the end of the revelation is something that we've seen throughout Scripture. It's something that we saw in the very beginning. And what John is showing us is the completion of it. The full satisfaction of it. The end of all of these visions are coming to fruition there. John's vision takes us all the way back to Genesis, only in John's vision, instead of just a garden, we see a garden within a heavenly city. So the Bible starts with a garden, and the Bible ends with a garden city. And that helps us understand something. There's something familiar here. In the end, the picture that we have is that God is going to make eternity reflect the primeval garden from the beginning where everything was pristine, where there was no sin, where there was no darkness, where there were no enemies, where there was no brokenness or corruption and no separation, but access to God forever. That's the picture, at least in part. This river that flows from the throne through the city represents eternal life the eternal life that comes from God God is the source of eternal life and everything within the city everything within the golden cube everything within the touching of the river is experiencing that eternal life that God promises and gives that's the picture that's the point God is the source of life and it's through him that we have joy and gladness because we drink from this city I mean from the river that flows through the city Uh, The psalmist also mentions this river in Psalm 46. He says, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The psalmist talks about this river flowing from God's throne, but he doesn't describe the people of God being around. Well, John describes the people of God. That's us, by the way being able to have access to the river, to the city. And the fact that this river flows from the throne of God and the Lamb lets us know that John has reached the point in the city where God is actually present. This is the center of the city. This is the very centermost most placed. And there's only one throne, like I mentioned earlier, and both the Father and the Son are seated upon the throne, and that shows us the unity of God. But there's also something that Jeff mentioned a few weeks ago. I'm going to bring it back up. I'm not going to go too far with it. But there is good evidence in all of those passages I've mentioned, going all the way back to Genesis and through the prophets and here, and even what Jesus says to the woman at the well in John 4, there is good evidence to suggest that the river of life is symbolic of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit proceeds out from the Father and the Son. And everything that the Holy Spirit touches, life, eternal life, erupts from it. And so what we're seeing at the center of this heavenly Jerusalem is we're seeing our triune God put on full display, accomplishing all of His purposes. And we, as the people of God, are with Him. Heaven is not heaven unless God is there. And the glory that we will enjoy in that heavenly reality is that we will have access to Him forever. Now notice in the text, look at verse 2. That's just verse 1. So let's look at verse 2. The angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit in each month. Even the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So not only do we see the river of life, but the focal point now shifts to the tree of life. And the tree of life also brings to mind the Garden of Eden. By the way, if you haven't figured this out, this is going to continue to be a theme. What we're seeing is we're, we're hearkening back to that Garden of Eden. And John is showing us, God is showing us in this revelation that he's restored that Edenic paradise to his people. Only it's far more grand than anything that we saw in the very beginning. But the tree of life is there. And the tree of life reminds us of the Garden of Eden because, well, that was the first time that we learned that there was such a tree, right? was in the garden. But it's, it's important to remember that the tree of life was not the only tree in the garden. And not only was the other tree the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, there were many trees in the garden. In Genesis chapter 2, if you want to flip there, you can. If you just want to write it down in your notes and look at it later, you can do that too. But in Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 8, we read this, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And this is verse 9, And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. So, there's a whole grove of trees here. There's a whole forest here. There's a whole wood in this garden. But he he goes on to say, the tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. So, we're getting another picture of that back here in Revelation 22. And, And I don't know what your thoughts are on Eden. I know we've got pictures that our kids use as visual illustrations when we're teaching them about the scriptures and about the Garden of Eden. But if you've got in your mind the idea that there's this garden, and then there's these two beautiful people prior to their fall, and then there's just two trees in the middle of the garden, and that's it, well, that's an incomplete picture of the Garden of Eden. The Bible tells us that a river ran through the center of the garden, and on either side were groves of trees. And that's not just what we see in the Garden of Eden in in Genesis 2. That's what we see in Ezekiel and Joel and Zechariah. We see this river running through the center. And rivers were important for cities because they provide life. They provide transit. They provide sustenance in the water that causes everything to grow. But even there, we saw this river running through the center of the garden. And on either side were groves of tree. Every tree that is pleasant. So don't just think, One big garden and two trees in the center of it. Think a whole wood surrounding a river and there are trees, specific trees, that are named in the midst of that. Mixed in and among all of the other trees were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. All right, so that's the Old Testament picture. Now John, as he makes his way to the center of the New Jerusalem, guess what he sees? He sees a river running through the garden that's in the midst of the city. And he sees trees on either side. And he sees access to the tree of life. John is unmistakably bringing us back to the garden of Eden. Only this time, it's the garden in the midst of the city. And the river runs through the middle of the street. And on either side, we see a familiar grove of trees. Now, you might read verse 2 and say, wait a minute. It just says there's one tree there. What are you talking about? A grove of trees. Well, why do I think that? Well, first of all, it says that the tree is growing on either side of the river. How could one tree grow on two sides of the river? Second, there are 12 different kinds of fruit. And and I know it's interesting to suggest that every month a different type of fruit comes from one type of tree, but That's not necessarily what we understand here. Third, and you can't see this in your your English Bibles because it's not there, but there's no article in front of the word tree in the Revelation. And that might suggest that we're supposed to understand tree in a collective sense. Uh, I I mentioned Tolkien earlier. If you are familiar with C.S. Lewis and the Chronicles of Narnia, you're familiar with the way that the Brits will use the term wood to describe an entire forest, aren't you? They'll use one word, wood, and it's used to describe a collection of trees. And it is perhaps the case, and many scholars will say that it is the case that this word tree is to be interpreted collectively, similar to the way that we would interpret an entire forest by simply using the word wood. And then fourth, and I think this is the most important of all, That there are other passages of Scripture that help to shape our understanding of this vision. Genesis 2 paints the picture of a river flowing through the garden and there's trees on either side. And Ezekiel 47 does the same thing. In Ezekiel 47, I mentioned that earlier, I'll, I'll quote it here. In verse 12, it paints the same picture as the prophet describes the future heavenly Jerusalem. Here's what he says. He says, and on the banks on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary and their fruit will be for food and and their leaves for healing. Now, I hope you can see the connection that John is making to Ezekiel 47 and 12. And that's why I believe that this picture of the tree of life, which John is describing, is that it has become 12 trees that line the river at least. And they're at the center of the new Jerusalem. And again, this picture brings us back to the Garden of Eden. The redeemed saints of God will enjoy a renewed Edenic paradise. The Bible begins with a garden, but it ends with a garden in the midst of a city. The original garden was only inhabited by two human beings, but this final garden will be full of all the people of God from both covenants, from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. All the people of God will take up residency in the city. That's why it needs to be a city. This heavenly garden that is to come will be a place where all the needs of God's people are are satisfied completely. The fruit will never stop growing. And all of this is symbolic to help us understand something. The fruit will never stop growing. The trees that are being nourished by the river of life, they will never stop growing. They will never stop producing their fruit. Even the leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations. All of this results in perfect healing, in a perfect reality. Not just for Adam and Eve, but for all of the nations. That's the picture. That's the point. Eden was... An earthly paradise. But what John sees goes beyond just an earthly paradise. This is a paradise that brings heaven and earth together, and it's, it's hard for us to get our minds around it fully. So that's a description of the city at the center. That's a description of the throne of God and the Lamb at the center of the new Jerusalem. But there's a, another description that John gives us. He tells us that in this city, the curse will be completely removed. Look back at verse 3. The curse will be no more. He says, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read this, I almost expect John to say something like, In this city there will no longer be any sin. But he doesn't use the word sin. He uses the word curse. And he uses that word on purpose. He uses it to remind us of Eden. Right? Because it was in Eden where the curse of sin was introduced. But Christ's death on the cross has lifted the curse for all those who turn from their sin and trust in Him. In Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13, we read Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming accursed for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who was hanged on a tree. From the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3, we we learn that the curse of sin rests upon every son of Adam and every daughter of Eve. All of us, every one of us, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And and in so many different ways, humanity has tried to work our way back to God only to find that that just makes the curse that much more heavy and unbearable for us. The Scriptures make it very clear that relying on the works of the law will only put us further under the curse. But trusting in Christ by faith allows us to receive God's blessing, not His curse. But what about tomorrow? What about this new Jerusalem? What about the garden at the center of this city? Will the curse be able to penetrate this new garden at the very end? And the answer is absolutely not. That's what John is saying here. The curse will be completely abolished. Nothing will be accursed in this city. And if, if you're thinking about the Garden of Eden and you're thinking about this new Garden of Eden, so to speak, then that's got to be a question in your mind. Will something sinister make its way in? Will, will brokenness enter in again? Will corruption find its way into the city? And John says, absolutely not. That's why there's a wall all the way around the city. We learned that last week. Nothing will enter the city That is impure. Nothing, no rebellion, no sin, nothing is going to drive us out of the garden. We're not going to be exiled again from the heavenly city of God. The curse of physical and spiritual death that were set on Adam's race in Genesis chapter 3 have been removed by the lamb and we will enjoy this permanent fixture of the garden with no curse, no sin, and no threats. It sounds like rest to me. And that's what the scriptures tell us. And we're looking forward to that eternal rest. When there's nothing more to worry about. I don't know about you. Um, I'm, not a, I'm not a dreamer. Y'all dream a lot that happened free, frequently for you. You wake up every morning and you have a new dream from the night before and you can remember that. I dream about maybe once every three years and usually my dreams are terrible. They're, they're nightmares. Someone I love has died or something terrible has happened. And you know that moment. If you, if you share that with me, those, maybe those recurring nightmares that happen, when, when, when you're in the middle of your dream, you're just, I mean, you can feel the anxiety even while you're sleeping, right? That sorrow, that pain, that grief, that frustration, it's there. And then you wake up. And for a couple of moments, you're wondering, is that true? And then you realize, oh, it's not true. I can reach over and my wife is still there. The house hasn't burned down around me. That terrible nightmare is not true at all. And it it requires us to wake up to realize it. And I imagine entering heaven is going to be a little bit like that. Only we're not waking up from some nightmarish dream. We're waking up from the real pain and the real sorrow and the real grief and the real loss that we experience in this life. Only we're going to wake up and we're going to realize that God has made all things new. God has restored all things. Our bodies are put back together. Our families are put back together. Our relationships are restored in a way that we can't even fully imagine. And all of the sad things will truly be untrue. That's what God promises here. To take all of those memories that haunt us, all of those sinful mistakes that bring us grief, all of those hurtful experiences that we've had in this life, and He's going to wipe them away like tears from our cheeks. The curse of sin will be no more. Because the curse of sin is not going to dwell in the same place where the throne of God and the Lamb dwell. And he will make it so that no immorality, no transgression, no sin, no corruption will ever find its way back in to haunt us again. Because the one who sits on the throne is the one who rules over everything. We learned that all the way back in Revelation chapter 4 when we saw that picture of the throne of God and, and all of the universe is surrounding him. And there's a sense in which this picture is showing us that we've, inhabit, we're, we've begun to inhabit that with God, that, that centermost place in the universe but what that picture of the throne of God shows us is that He rules over everything. Our God triumphs over everything, every detail, every need, every hurt, everything. He is making it right. He is the center of all reality. And He's not going to allow another bad thing to creep into the garden. But what about us? Right? We, we see this picture. We see this hope. We see this vision of the presence of God. We see this reality of the curse being completely done away with. But what about us? What are we going to be doing for eternity? You ever ask yourself that question? Surely you have. What are we going to be doing for eternity? Well, John doesn't give us a full picture of that, but he does give us a picture of that. Look back at verse 5. He says that the servants of God in eternity will worship him. That's at the end of verse 3. In verse 4, it tells us that we will see His face, and His name will be on our foreheads, and the night will be no more. We will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord will be their light, and then we will reign forever and ever. Now, I'm, I'm a preacher, so I see five things there. So here's, here's what we see. Here's, here's the five things that I think we see in this verse. Number one, we're going to be worshiping Him. And that word worship can also be the same word for serve. We're going to worship and serve the Lord. That's what the servants of God will be doing in eternity, worshiping and serving the Lord. And I don't know exactly what that looks like. I don't know if that means that our ability to sing and maybe those of us who don't have an ability to sing, all of a sudden we'll be able to sing with heavenly voices and we'll be able to, to do that. Or maybe those of us who always wanted to be able to teach or serve in some capacity and that we weren't able to because of some limitation or ailment, all of a sudden we will be able to, to serve the Lord and to serve each other. But there's going to be in this reality for us A singing and a serving and a worshiping of the Lamb and those who sit on the throne. Not only will we be worshiping Him and serving, but we will also see His face, verse 4 tells us. See His face. This is no small thing. We read that phrase and we think, oh, that'll be great. I'll see Him. No, no, no. You have to understand something of the biblical baggage to that phrase to understand just how significant that is. The Lord told Moses in Exodus that no man was allowed to see his face and live. God's holiness and our sin is what made that impossible. But the saints of God who have expressed our faith in Christ and experienced the hope Of Christ, when we get to that place, we will be able to see Him as He is. And we've been longing for this for a long time, right? We've been longing to see the face of God. How many times have you asked that in your silent prayers that God would allow you to see Him? The psalmist talks about the desire for the upright to see His face. And that's a reference to the future hope that all of God's people have when we will be in His presence. John reminded us in John chapter 1 that no man has ever seen God, but the Son of God has made him known. We write songs about the face of God, the face of our Creator and Redeemer and Father and Lord. And what John is telling us here is that one of the things we're going to do in heaven is we are going to see the face of our Redeemer. And we won't be ushered out we won't, we won't have trouble seeing it again because our sin will be removed and He longs to reveal Himself to us in that way. With our sin removed, we will be able to look on the face of God. Number three, it tells us that we will bear His name. His name will be on our foreheads. And that seems like an odd thing. What is that all about? Well, as we've been studying the Revelation, we understand that a name written across a forehead is talking about a relationship, a deep relationship of intimacy. The, the unbelievers had the name of the beast written on their forehead, and those who profess faith in Christ had the name of Christ written upon our forehead. And the whole point here is to show that we are going to have this intimate relationship with God in eternity. And that intimate fellowship is going to look like Family. In other words, we are going to bear the name of our Father in heaven. We, we do something like that here. I mean, we, we give our names to our children. Sometimes we give our first name to our children. Every time we give our last name to our children, they are a reflection of us. And the picture that we have here in the Revelation is that we will have that familial, relational in- intimacy with the Father. We will be His sons and daughters And then, fourthly, it says that we will behold his glory in the fact that we will see God as the light of the city. We will see the glory of God. Moses was the first to ask God, Show me your glory. You remember that passage? He had been speaking to God. He had seen the burning bush. He had had seen these amazing things from God. Had just given him his law written by the finger of God on stone. He he had seen all of these things. He had spoken to God and he asked God, show me your glory. And God said, I can't show you my glory. I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock. And as I pass by, I'll let you see kind of the, the after effect of my glory. And from that point forward, men have longed to see the glory of God and yet the glory of God has been hidden from us. The the Israelites were allowed to see the glory of God descend upon the tabernacle and the temple, but they had to hide their faces and turn away. When Moses came down from the mountain, having been in the presence of God, not even being allowed to see the full glory of God, he came down and his face shone, and the people said, put a veil on. It was so bright, it was so amazing and awesome that it terrified the people. And this picture of heaven is that we will be able with waking eyes to see and behold the glory of God. In the city that is to come, we will behold his glory and we will not be made to look away. We will be given access into God's presence. And not only that, but number five, we will reign at his side forever and ever. Now, we've seen pictures of this throughout the scriptures, right? Adam had a chance to reign at the Father's side, but he sinned, he forfeited that opportunity, and he was exiled from the presence of God. And his reign upon the earth, his rule, his representation of God was marred and corrupted. And since that time, the Lord has raised up individuals who are allowed to be anointed by the Spirit of God to exhibit something of the rule and the reign of God. Prophets, priests, kings, leaders on earth have been able to, to at least at some level, participate in the responsibility of reigning part of the kingdom of God. But one of the greatest blessings for the believer is that we will actually share in Jesus' eternal reign. Not simply as spectators, and not simply as those who will be reigned over but the Bible actually says, says that we will be co-heirs with Jesus. We have some part in his inheritance, and we have some part in his reign. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we're told that we're going we're to rule over and judge angels. I don't know what all that means, except for what I just stated. But that's one of the things that we will be doing. The kingdom of God will be something that we have a part in, the eternal state will be something where we have responsibilities and we reign at Christ's side. This is not the only thing. Jesus even says in, earlier in Revelation 3 that we will have some share in his throne. So this is a beautiful picture of something, of what we're going to be doing. It doesn't tell us everything, but it tells us enough to long for it. And that's what I want to do today. I, I really generally want to be able to give you two or three things that you can take away as application points to this. But my hope for this passage is this, that we can behold the glory of God and marvel at it and long for it. Heaven's new Jerusalem is the true and better Garden of Eden. The Bible has come full circle. All of the sin and all of the problems and all of the creation introduced in Genesis has now come full circle. And God has made all things right and all things new. The heavenly Jerusalem, there's a river there. It's the river of life. The tree of life is there. The source of life is there. And we will be with Him. And as Adam walked with God in the garden in the cool of the day, we will be able to walk with God in the garden of the new Jerusalem that is to come. Sin will be no more. Death will lose its sting. Our sorrows will be turned into joy as our tears are wiped away, never to return. We will worship the Lord. We will see His face. We will bear His name and we will learn what it means to reign at His side. Heaven is going to be like waking up from a long bad dream to learn that all the sad things of life have come untrue. All heaven will break loose and we will be there to experience it. Our hearts and our minds and our bodies and our world will all be made new the way God intended it to be all along. And this is the hope and the promise for believers in Christ. Which means this, if you're a Christian, if you've put your trust in the Lord Jesus to take away the stain and guilt of your sin, and if you are trusting in him today to lead you into this reality, if you've turned from your sin and you've put your hope in him, then eternal life is the point when we will finally be freed from sin's claim on us. And we will be ushered into the very presence of God. But if you're not a believer, if you've decided that you're gonna go your own way in this world, you're gonna gonna meet eternity on your own merit, The Bible says that you'll never see this. You'll never see this. Because for those who reject the gospel of Christ, the lake of fire awaits. The judgment of your sin awaits. And so, friend, if you don't know Christ, but you long for this eternity, there is but one way. Turn from your self-salvation mission and put your hope and trust in Christ alone. Death is not the end, it is a new beginning. That's the hope of Christianity, and that's what the gospel brings to all those who believe. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this beautiful passage, and I understand that there are so much more here than what I can describe in a sermon that lasts about 45 minutes. And so would you help us as your people? to long to gaze upon the beauty of your word and to meditate on it and to think on it and to understand it and to behold the hope and the glory and the beauty of what you've held out as a, a promise for your people. And will you allow our hearts to be filled with hope would you allow our lives to be, a, to be a reflection of that hope because we live for you and we live to make you gl- look glorious in our lives, that we live to honor the one who saved us and has given us such a, a hope-filled promise. And for those among us who don't know you, Father, I pray that you would convict them of their sin and that you would convict them of the longing, just to have that longing for this eternity and, re- and let them know in the way that only you and your spirit can in your word. But there is but one way to enter into this eternity, and that's through Christ. So accomplish your purpose, have your way with us, and receive our worship now. In Jesus' name, amen.